Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Psalm 63. Thank you for the gifts of guitar picks up here. It's great. Um, we're in the 63rd Psalm this morning. This is a time where we place ourselves underneath the authority of God's word because we believe that God actually speaks through his word. This is his word, right? And it's his word for us. Do you believe that? All right, so we're going to look at Psalm 63 this morning. In the 1700s, there was a young minister named John Wesley who was part of the Church of England. And as he was a minister in the Church of England in the 1700s, he looked around and he said, wow, like this Church of England thing is not working for me. It's like there's just no piety, he said. And you say, well, what, is it? what does piety mean? He said, as I look around at all the ministers and all the people in the pews, he says, all I see is no love, no joy, no passion in the following and serving of Jesus. After that, he had an encounter with God. And in that encounter with God, he came to realize his need for Jesus Christ, the Savior, and it changed him. It dramatically changed him. But it also caused him to be kicked out of the Church of England. And so he became a, an itinerant minister. He went from horseback to horseback. Remember, this is the day before trains and automobiles, right, and planes. So he went, he went from town to town on, on horseback, and he would preach the gospel to people, and people heard this strange message, and they responded, and they became followers of Jesus Christ. And so as he was going from town to town, he realized that he needed to create up, create meeting places for these people who had now become true followers of Jesus Christ because they were hearing a totally different message in the Church of England. And so as he gathered them together and he created these meeting places, he told them, I, when you gather together, I want you to ask a question of one another every time you meet. And the question that he asked them to ask was, how goes it with your soul? So that's the question I want to ask you this morning. I want to ask you the same question that John Wesley asked the people who had become, to become followers of Jesus Christ in the 1700s. How goes it with your soul? How actually is your soul doing? What's your relationship with Jesus Christ actually like? What kind of condition is your soul in? So if I were to leave, the, leave this spot right now, and I was to walk down and talk to you face-to-face -face right now, and I said to you, how goes it with your soul? How would you respond to that question? Some of you would say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Please don't ask me that question. Right? Many of us are, you know, we're all Canadians, so we kind of, you know, don't probe too much. Maybe some of you would say, I'm, a, I'm in an okay place. I could be better. I'm not that, not that bad. It's all right. I think I'm doing all right. Some of you might say the condition of your soul is best described as hurried or distracted or maybe weary or fragmented. Some of you might say hurt or dry. Or maybe some of you would say, I, you know, whatever it is, I just, I, I just want more. Well, Psalm 63 is a great psalm for us to sit still in this morning and be able to answer the question, 
what actually is the condition of my soul. And so I want to read that for us this morning, just so we can get a feel for the entire psalm and how David is expressing the condition of his soul this morning. So let's read it. Psalm 63, I'll read, you follow along, beginning at verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king, speaking of himself, shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. And in this psalm, David is answering the question about the condition of his soul. And he's telling us, and God, through his spirit, is telling us this morning, what is good for our soul is a passionate pursuit of God because God alone, God alone gives us what we need. He starts his psalm in verses 1 through 4. He talks about this longing that he has for God's presence. So think about your own soul. How much do you long for God's presence? He starts with his grand allegiance statement. Oh God, you are my God. Right? It's, it's bold. He's saying, God, it's you, God, and nothing else. He's talking about his relationship. He's talking about how he's submitting himself to the Lord. He's talking about his commitment to God. This is the foundation to a passionate pursuit of God. You have to be able to say, oh, God, you are my God. You are my God. It assumes a relationship. Those of you who have faith in Jesus Christ, you have believed in what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection. You've been saved by grace through faith. Oh, God, you are my God. It's impossible to long for God, to passionately pursue God without faith in Jesus Christ. Without relationship with God, you can't long for God, right? Does that make sense? And so he expresses this allegiance that he has for God. Oh, God, you are my God. And then he talks about his eagerness for God in verse 1. He says, earnestly I seek you. Uh, that word earnest is from the word dawn, like sun rising. The time when the sun rises, I was, I was kind of upset this morning that I didn't see the sun come up. It was just cloudy today, but that's the picture here. Earnestly, I seek you. That's why some of your translations will read, early in the morning, I seek you. He's talking about seeking God early, seeking God diligently, seeking God with intensity. Come on, ask yourself, when you're thinking about the condition of your soul, how 
eager are you for God? How eager are you? You don't have to drag David out of bed in the morning to be with the Lord. Now, I know we all have our days, right? We all have our days. We all have our days. But what do you think overall, the picture of your soul, is your soul at a spot right now where you just, God, I want to be with you. There's this eagerness. There's this passion. You are my God. I Earnestly, I seek you. Then he expresses his desperation for God. Not only is he eager for God, but he's desperate for him. You see that in verse 1? He says, my soul thirsts for you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. That word faint there is from an Aramaic word that literally means his face has gone pale. It's like the blood has run out. He's so, he's so desperate for the Lord. He says, I'm, I'm like the guy who's stuck in the desert. You know, you have the picture of the desert where the guy is in the desert and, and he needs water. He has no water. He desperately needs water. He has to get water. And just like the person who is stuck in the desert who doesn't have water and desperately needs water and wants water so desperately, so it is with the condition of our soul. It should be that our flesh faints for God like that. I desperately need God. I have to have him. I'm so, so desperate for him. And he says three times in this verse, for you, for you, for you. Right? It's, this is for you. I'm desperate for you. I'm longing for you. I'm eager for you. This is, he's not eager for an idea about God or information about God. He is passionate in his pursuit for actually an experience with God. So, so many times we mistake the idea of God. We just think of it as an idea or, or a piece of information. I certainly believe information about God is important, and we have to understand the concepts of Scripture but really, what are we actually eager for? What is your passion for? Is it to actually understand more about him, or is it actually to experience him? To be in actual relationship with him. To experience his presence. He just is refuses to be complacent. God's everything to him, and that must be true for us as well. Tozer uh, said in his book, Pursuit of God, he said, you come near to the holy men and women of the past and you will soon feel the heat of their desire for after God. They mourned for him, they prayed and they wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out. And when they had found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. So I ask you again, how goes it with your soul? When I read Psalm 63, verse 1, I want this. I so desperately want this for my life. You, we all should, those of us who are followers of Jesus should so desperate to want this for our life. 
How do I get this kind of passion and kind of eagerness and kind of longing in my life? What, what is it? How, how does that happen? Well, look at verse 2. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, it comes from a growing clarity and a conviction about who God is. Look, verse 2. I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better in life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hand. The word so there indicates probably the idea of both of result and reason. The result of the longing and the reason for the longing is these three things. He, he says, I'm, I'm contemplating, I'm looking at, I'm beholding your power, God. I'm beholding your glory, God. I'm beholding your steadfast love. And I don't know about you, but when I think about God's power, it takes me to creation. And I think of Jeremiah 51, verse 15, that says, It is he who made the earth by his power. I think of the Exodus, when God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt, and they escaped, and they went to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh was pursuing after them. And what does God do? He parts the waters, right? Like the special effects of that movie, you know, not that great. But he parts the waters. And what happens is the nation of Israel walks through on dry land to the other side, and Pharaoh and his army get swallowed up by God. That's power. Okay? That's absolute power. And it also reminds me of Jesus, who in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, stood up on, in, with his disciples on the boat, and he calmed the sea. And then the very next story in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, he cast demons out of a man. And then the very next story in Mark chapter 5, verses 24 through 29, he cures disease. And in the same chapter, he raises Jairus' daughter up from the dead. That's power. Our passion for God, our longing for God, comes from our understanding that our God is powerful, but we also think about his glory. And when I think about glory, it takes me back to the Old Testament, and I think about Moses pleading with God, show me your glory. Or I think about the Shekinah glory, where the presence of God was, during the day, they were led by a cloud at night, a pillar of fire. That's like, whoa! And then I think about the meeting tent, where Moses would actually go in, and he would just, he would meet with the Lord. I mean, that's like, that's awesome. He would actually just meet with the Lord. This, and then I think about the tabernacle or the temple. The temple was where the glory of the Lord actually resided within the nation of Israel. I think about all of these things. And then I think about Jesus, the full concentration of God's glory. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. You see it here on the screen, Hebrews 1, 3. It says, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I think of of, of John 1.14, John 1.14 that reminds us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory. And then I think about his steadfast love, and when I think of his steadfast love, his said, his loyal, his resolute love, his covenant love, I think of Abraham and how God reached down into the world 
a man who was polytheistic, worshiping so many different gods, and he brought him out of that, and God in his grace makes a covenant with Abraham and changes the entire forecast of history. That's what his steadfast love is like. It, it, I think of Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 through 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And I also think of Jesus, who is the culmination of God's steadfast love. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 tells us. Doesn't tell us? 1 John 4, I can look it up. Okay, oh, there it is. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's God's steadfast love. Jesus is the culmination of God's steadfast love towards us. And that's why he says your steadfast love is better than life. Because it is better than life. Actually, it is life. And so longing for the presence of God, we long for the presence of God because we understand more his power, his glory, his steadfast love. It, we gain a greater clarity and conviction about who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And that requires, that absolutely requires a deep contemplation. It said, do you see that? In verse 2, it says, so I have looked upon it. I have looked upon it. Then he says in the next line, behold it. This doesn't happen quickly. You can't Google it. In 2010, uh, Brenda and I went for our, it was our 25th anniversary, and so we decided we were going to go visit our son, who at that time was working at the Black Horse Academy in Germany. We went and visited him for a number of days. Saw amazing things. It was great. And then we took the train from Germany and went to Paris, and we decided we were going to do Paris in four days. So listen to me. We were going to do Paris in four days. So any of you been to Paris before? Some of you have. Some of you have been to Paris before. There's a lot to see in Paris. But we were set on seeing as much as possible of Paris. So it was not like a rest-at-the-beach kind of vacation. It was like, let's go, and when we get there, we're running, and we're going, and we're going, and we're going. So we got to see the Eiffel Tower. We got to see Versailles. That was amazing. We went to Notre Dame Cathedral. This is before the fire, right? So we got to actually see everything took place. But my absolute favorite place was the Louvre, right? The, one of the world's largest art museums. And so uh, my wife is an amazing, Brenda's here with me tonight. She's an, she just researches everything ahead of time. I just go along for the ride. And she says, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to buy our passes to go to the museum. And one of the catches is when you buy a pass for a day, you can actually go the night before. I didn't know that. And it turned out that many people didn't know that. And the reason why we did that is so that we could see all the main kind of things, right? So we went in the evening before, we went to see things like the Mona Lisa. Usually during the day, there's long lineups to see this thing that's about this big, you know, kind of idea. And so we, we did all that the one night, and, but we had to boot it, man. We went from one thing, one thing, one thing. We went to the next thing. Then the next morning, we got up early. We went back to the museum, and we 
we just ran from place to place to place to place to place. But I remember, I remember like it was like yesterday as we were running from spot to spot to spot that we were in this, in this room where there were these, you know, these big paintings, these huge, beautiful paintings that we were just blowing by and looking at so quickly. There was somebody who was actually sitting still on a bench and looking and observing one of these huge paintings. And in that one second, as I was running past that person, I thought to myself, oh, I wish I were you. Yeah, I saw the whole thing. But I didn't experience like him. So it is with God and his power and his glory and his steadfast love. Sometimes our pace doesn't allow us to take it all in, to increase our clarity and our conviction, to stoke our longing of the Lord because we're just too busy to blow by it all. God calls followers of Jesus Christ to live a different way in this world. Our culture is instant, it's immediate, and it's superficial. I know I'm in Huntsville. But it's still, you're still part of a culture that's instant, immediate, and superficial. We are called to live differently. And the, the scriptures give us disciplines and habits that would allow us to slow down and create space and find time to actually contemplate God's power, his glory, and his steadfast love in Jesus Christ. You know, I've, I've learned in my life eight things that really help me. Okay, and, and being able to do this. I'm just going to share these really quick for you, just kind of as an applicational thing. I've learned for me, like the first hour of my day, to try not to touch my phone because I have found that I have, I have a hard time. Maybe you don't have a hard time, but I have a hard time not being sucked into other things when I use my phone for my devotional life. And so I use a hard copy of God's Word, and I read God's Bible, the, the words of Scripture. Why do I do that? Because I don't, I, I don't want to touch my phone because I know when I touch my phone, I'm getting sucked into different directions that I, I don't want to. I'm blowing by things. I've learned, I've learned this thing, too, that in my prayer, sometimes praying out loud to God is really, really awesome and good because it keeps me focused. I pray, try to pray scripture audibly to God, not just read it, but actually actually say the word to the Lord. Reading scripture slowly, to not be in a rush, to actually read it and then repeat, and then repeat. I'd like to play worship music that's focused on who God is and what he's done in Christ. But not all worship music is created equal. To find some that's focused on God, on Christ, what he's done in Christ, his powerful song. Sometimes I like to delete things off my phone. You say, why are you talking about the phone? Because it's a problem. Sometimes for a season, I just delete some apps. I just stay off of social media. You say, wow, you're on social media? Yeah, a little bit. But this is the thing, like, let God's love for you form you rather than what other people, your friends or your followers, are thinking about you. Evaluate the pace of your family life, how active you are. Create room 
for the contemplation of actually the power and the glory and the steadfast love of God. Do that together. And then get some friend who will actually regularly ask you this question. How goes it with your soul? He starts this psalm and he talks about the longing for God's presence. And then quickly he moves into this section, section, second section in verses 5 through 8. And he talks about how it's important for us to understand the satisfaction of the provision of God. You will not passionately pursue after God unless you are utterly and completely satisfied with God's provision and protection. All right, look at what he says in verse 5. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips, he says. That word satisfied is not like, I'm okay with it. You know, sometimes when somebody, you're in a conversation with somebody, and then the conclusion will be, are you, are you satisfied with that? And somebody will say, yeah, I'm okay with that. That's not what satisfaction means. Satisfaction means abundance here. It means abundance. It means fullness. It means like over-the-top kind of abundance. I'm that's what the satisfaction means here. And he says here in verse 5 that you will find abundance in God. Your, your soul, your soul can be that full. Okay, it can be that full when you're experiencing God. Right? Um, many, that's what we all want, right? We all want that for our souls. We want to feel this, this abundance in our souls. And we, we look for it in all different places. Some of us look for it in spouses or boyfriends or girlfriends or friends or whatever. We're looking for in people. Sometimes we're looking for it in the next experience, right? Sometimes we're uh, looking for things like, uh, like in my position or my status or the how powerful I might be. That sometimes we get these quick hits to our souls that kind of make us feel a, a false sense of abundance. But there's only... One person that can deliver abundance to your soul, and it's God. It's Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can make you feel that kind of abundance. I love how he illustrates here in verse 5. He illustrates with food. Do you see what he says in verse 5? He says, I'll be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I mean, I, don't you love a good meal? Everybody loves a good meal. He uses this illustration, like with fat and rich fruit. He says, God's not handing out fast-processed spiritual food for your soul. He's into full-course Michelin star spiritual food. He's like the master chef of awesome, right? That's what he does. And you have to understand that it's, it's God who brings the abundance. It's actually his person that brings the abundance. He's the food. He not only delivers the food, it's, he's, he's delivering the food, but it's actually his person that makes your soul feel abundant. It, and this comes from our souls constantly meditating on the Lord. Look at verse 6. He says, this is true, verse 5 is true. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me, he says. Our satisfaction and our abundance in God is linked to our meditation on God. The root word here for 
Meditate is the growl of the lion. It's like, not the roar, right? You know, the roar, that loud roar, right? That's like, that's like the, that's like the, the preacher announcing danger. It's not that. It's the low kind of growl. It's the growl of anticipation. It's a constant kind of growl that's going on in, inside of you. It's a pondering, giving serious thought. It's mulling it over. It's muttering to yourself. How many of you mutter? I love muttering. I love, I love, you know, when I go, when I'm preparing for a sermon, uh, like everybody around me knows, okay, Earl's preparing a sermon because all of a sudden, every, like, every hour he'll come out of his office and he'll go for a walk. And I talk to myself, talking to the Lord, kind of processing things in my mind. That's muttering, man. This is the idea of meditation. It's constantly kind of going over these things, muttering you things over and over and over and over again. When does he do that? He does it when, on his bed during the watches of the night. Like, even when God wakes him up in the middle of the night, what's the first thing he does? He starts thinking about God. This is like a 24-7 thing for him. He's eager in the morning, and he's also eager at night. And what is it that he meditates on? Well, he meditates on God's power, on his glory, on his steadfast love. He meditates on God's provision and his faithfulness. He says in verse 7, you have been my help. I have been in the shadow of your wings in verse 7. In verse 8, he says, your right hand upholds me. He's recounting the faithfulness of the Lord in his life. He's mulling over, muttering to himself God's faithfulness to him, his power, his glory, his steadfast love, his provision, his protection. Thomas Chisholm is the man who wrote the famous hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. He didn't, use, he didn't put the music to it, but he wrote the words, right? Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. This is what, Psalm, this is what David's doing. He's muttering, he's, He's meditating on the faithfulness and the provision of the Lord in his life. He doesn't say, great is my wealth. He doesn't say, great is my status in life, or great is my comfortableness, or my job, or my ministry, or my family, or my social media presence, or my success, because none of those things bring lasting abundance to your soul. He says, great is your faithfulness, your protection, Lord, your provision, Lord. So how is it, go, how is it going with your soul? Are you meditating on the fact that God has been faithful to you, that he has shown you everything that you need in Christ? You have every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. Are you rehearsing those spiritual blessings of the Lord? Have you do you rehearse how God has showed up for you in the past and how you the promise that he will do for everything for you in the future in Jesus Christ and the understanding that you have that even now he's going to show he's going to provide for you he's going to protect you Great is his faithfulness <coughs> The more you meditate on that the more your soul clings to the Lord you see that in verse 8 My soul clings to you Why Because God is faithful. He's faithful. 
that moves our souls to cling to him, to, to just be, so how goes it with your soul? And then he ends this psalm with this, this confidence that he has in the plan of God. Now, this is fascinating because look at verse 9. He says, those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. He has this awesome confidence in the plan of God. The, the context, this is what makes this psalm so fascinating. Because the context of which David is writing this psalm, he's not writing the psalm in the midst of a perfect situation in his life. This isn't a calm moment in his life. He's actually facing a very real threat. He's the king. This, most commentators believe that he actually wrote this in response to the time when Absalom was trying to hunt him down and kill him. And he makes these statements. They're not wish statements. They're actually rooted in his confident reality that his confidence that he has in the Lord. He's confident that God will vindicate, that God will bring his judgment. And isn't it awesome to know that in our contexts that are not calm, that sometimes are very confusing, sometimes we don't understand what's going on, that our, our confidence is found in knowing that God is actually in control, that he actually has a plan, that he is powerful, that he is glorious. He always expresses his steadfast love to those that he loves, that he is faithful, he provides, he protects, he will judge. And that's why in the midst of all of this that's going on in his life, David says over and over and over again, I will delight in the Lord. I will delight in the Lord. Look at it. Look at it. Look at verse 3. He says, my lips will praise you. I can't keep silent about your power, your glory, your steadfast love. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. A lifelong pursuit is a uh, life full of praise. Verse 5, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Verse 7, I will sing for joy. Verse 11, the king shall rejoice. All who swear by him will exalt. Even in the midst of the confusion and, the, and, the, and that in his life, he, he says, my soul, my soul, my soul is good. Because my God is awesome. And if you're longing for the presence of God, if you're going to be fully satisfied with the provision of God and you're confident in the plan of God, you will delight in God. So how goes it with your soul? Come on, be honest. Be honest, church. What are you passionately pursuing? Let's pray together. Father, we, we have worked through this psalm, and Lord, I, uh, I'm thankful here for your Spirit's presence here this morning. Father, I pray that we would believe with all of our hearts that what's good for our soul is a passionate pursuit of you, because you alone give us what we need. So, Father, I pray that you would 
bless us with that. We would, we would revel in our salvation in Jesus Christ. We would be in pursuit of you and your presence in our lives, Lord. I pray that the things that are distracting us from that or pulling us away from that, whatever they are, we would confess those before you and we would run to you like courage. Even in our frustration, even in our disappointments, Lord, we would take all those and run them straight toward you. Nowhere else, just you. So we pray these things in Jesus' name because we love Jesus so much. Thank you, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.